You only create intimate relationships in hardship. If you want to make close friends, don't go to the bar. If you want to make close friends, sweat together, work together, round up cows together, chop thistles together. That's why soldiers, that's why military people come back with such lifelong, enduring friendships. Because when you're dodging a howitzer together, that's hardship. And you're depending on each other. And I'm very concerned that today's modern family, there is no hardship. Everybody's, everything's provided. And children grow up without hardship. And they haven't been down in the trenches together. Weeding green beans. Cutting off corn so it can be frozen for winter's meal and developing the intimate understanding of what true working together does. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is where hope grows. Hey everyone, this is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Welcome back to another gold medal episode that will eternally grace the highest podiums of life, liberty, and of course, the pursuit of goodness. Today, we are live streaming the unedited and unchained mind of Joel Salatin as he brilliantly calls upon you to join what he calls a homesteading tsunami, one that is sweeping across America as hundreds of thousands of families have decided to depart from big cities in order to become more self-sufficient, more resilient, and find higher purpose and meaning. Driven by fractures in our modern industrial way of living, homesteading has recently accelerated as a result of things like the COVID pandemic, moments of food insecurity over the last couple of years, the continuing seemingly endless high prices of living in large cities, and an overwhelming desire for people to opt out of materialism and consumerism while connecting back to the land. While some refer to this exodus from cities as well as mother culture as opting out, I believe that this is a movement and a more intention of opting in. Opting in to something that is more satisfying and often more meaningful within your life's journey. Now, it's time to hear from the legend himself, a man who needs no formal introduction, a true pioneer and a catalyst for culture change, here is Joel Salatin presenting a prophetic vision, which he predicts a massive oncoming homestead tsunami. Enjoy this terrific episode. Homestead tsunami. We talked about freeing ourselves, disentangling from the system. I can tell you I've never seen... Um, the parade of RVs 
coming by our farm last year, it seemed like there were one, two, or three a day, every single day of the week. Here comes this, uh, you know, Rent, Rent America, whatever that, you know, uh, RV in. Family gets out. We're from California. <laughs> Most of them. <laughs> We've sold out. And uh, we don't know where we're going to land. We rented this thing. We're on a, uh, you know, a one-month uh, circuitous tour of the U.S., and we're going to land somewhere. We don't know where it is, but, you know, we wanted to come by. And um, I have never seen that or had that in, in, in my lifetime, just a steady parade of people that are opting out. And, and um, there's this intuitive understanding that if things are going to become dysfunctional, I don't want to be stuck in the city. And there, there's a certain, uh, uh, you know, risk of being stuck in a city when you're dysfunctional. I had a fascinating conversation uh, recently with two um, aging out uh, special forces, special ops guys, and their wives had a conference call. In fact, they were in Texas. Uh, these were career military guys, and um, they're convinced that you know things are going to become more and more disturbed. And um, and so we were talking about you know how do you? Uh, I, I'm not. I'm trying not to use the word prepper because that has so much kind of you know suddenly your tinfoil hat prepper you know. Uh, but but um, you know preparation is not bad. Um, you know, uh, look to the ant thou sluggard, you know, he works in the summer and puts it by for the winter. And, and, uh, and so, you know, pre preparing is not a bad thing. Anyway, what they had come up to in our discussion was there's two responses to this. If the wheels fall off, we can either go to Idaho or Wyoming and live in a cave and become hermit mountain men, you know, or we can try to find a, a, a tribal community somewhere and hook up with some like-minded people that are, you know, doing things on their own, gardening, canning, sewing, um, butchering, farming, that sort of thing. And what was interesting about as the discussion proceeded was, is, was either one of those is, is a possibility, is a viable possibility, you know, if you're, if you're going to go uh, survive a, a, a disturbance. Now, I can tell you both wives were far more interested in community than they were in being a mountain man in a cave. That, that, that's for sure. But was it? But the common thing in both of those options was they both take time. They both take time. You can go live in a cave and be a mountain man and trap and, you know, uh, learn how to skin and, and make sinew out of, or make uh, cordage out of sinew and all that, all right? But that takes time to learn those kind of skills. Same thing with community. It takes time to build community. It was interesting that, that that time factor was with both of them. It makes me think about all we've talked about today, building connections, relationships, reconnecting, biology. Uh, Ann's talk was just, just great. Uh, Kate's was all these talks have been great and 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 the one thing that we all we, we, we embrace them but the downside is 
I can't do all that in a day. That's the downside. And so there's a time factor in that. So I want to I address for a little bit this, this why. why. Why are people or why should people start looking at, at this, this, this homestead tsunami that we see? What I encounter, so I'm encountering a lot of people that are jumping, you know, jumping out of their urban places. I'm encountering, and, and, and routinely they tell me my family and friends thinks we're crazy. And they're trying to dissuade them, just like the guidance counselors in my high school tried to dissuade me from being a farmer. I'll never, I've still got emotional scars from the last um, uh, encounter I had with a guidance counselor as a rising senior. And she says, what do you really want to do with your life? I said, I want to be a farmer. Oh, I thought I was going to have to give her, you know, CPR uh, off the floor. What? Waste all those brains? Waste all that talent? You know, only, you know, dummies farm. And that's the kind of societal, uh, societal thing. And, um, and, and so, so, you know, these, the families and friends try to dissuade them. And then the other thing is, Here's what I'm encountering more and more because this, this thing has really developed over the last, like, you know, three years. The other thing I'm encountering is a lot of two- and three-year-old folks who jumped two or three years old, two or three years ago, got their homestead, small acreage, and they're discouraged. They built all these castles, all these fantasies in the sky, but in reality, the cows got mastitis, the cucumbers got powdery mildew, and yesterday the neighbor's dog came and ate all the chickens. And I'm discouraged. So sometimes we need to return to the why. Why would we be interested in, in, in living somewhere where Papa John's pizza doesn't get delivered? Why would we live somewhere where all we hear at night is frogs croaking instead of sirens blaring. Who would want to live in a place like that? I mean, it's so quiet. Where you can see the stars instead of the stoplights. That's preposterous. So let, let, let's look at the why. Let's look at the why is this going on. The first one is food security. Again, I won't repeat what I said in the last one, but, but we have a, a real concern right now about food, not the least of which right now is the, um, what, 60 million chickens that we've killed with um, high path avian influenza. So you know what egg prices are doing. Egg prices are through the roof. Uh, yeah, it's hard to believe. And so during COVID in 2020, did you know that one million flocks of backyard chickens started up in the U.S. One million backyard flocks of chickens. That is what happens when people start getting concerned. And so one of the things that's driving this is just enough, to have enough food to, to, to replace the larder and to have personal provenance to know I grew it. It's out there. One of my favorite places is uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. If you've never been there, you know, it's a, it's a living history museum of, the, of Williamsburg. But my favorite is actually not Williamsburg. It's the Powhatan Village next door. And if you go to the Powhatan Village next door, where the, the Native Americans were, you go into these cool, you know, buffalo hide uh, um, houses 
with uh, held up by a skeleton of, of bent over lattice work of, of small wood. But you look up in the top and hanging up there is fish and venison and elk and deer smoking up there and parched corn, squash. Um, and, and to imagine lying there with your beloved at night, looking up into that canopy of food would overwhelm you, A, with gratitude. We gathered this. We, we put this in. You know, we, 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 we found our own provenance. But it would also, and, 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 and we did it. You know, there's, so there's this great uh, sense of independence, you know, um, like uh, Jimmy Stewart in uh, the movie Shenandoah, you know, uh, when he's praying over the meal and if we had done it, it wouldn't have happened. We did it ourselves, you know, but, um, but in, in this case, the, 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 the satisfaction and the ability, the, the thing that we, we did this ourselves. Um, but then the other side is the utter dependence on this ecological womb that we are utterly dependent on this out here. We're not dependent on Costco. We're not dependent on Walmart. Um, you know, we, we actually have our, our, our food. And so to, to have that providence when you're lying down with your beloved, both dependency and independency. Um, processing, food security and processing is a big deal. You know, what are they doing to my food? You know, we're the first generation that routinely eats food that you can't make in your kitchen. You ever tried to make uh, monosodium glutamate in your kitchen or uh, high fructose corn syrup? or any number, you know, red dye 29. Uh, I mean, we, we routinely consume things that you can't make in your kitchen. I'm kind of with Michael Pollan on this. We probably shouldn't eat anything that wasn't available before 1900. 1900 is kind of the, you know, the cutoff. And we can all be thankful that hot dogs were introduced at the 1890 World's Fair. I mean, they just squeaked in under the wire. Good old hot dogs. But as we learn more and more about our food, both in production and processing, more and more people get, get concerned about this. I want to have a direct, you know, a direct uh, um, uh, relationship with this food. And now, of course, the new huge thing is the mRNA jabs. And um, now we know that 12 years ago, they began putting them in chickens. Five years ago, they began putting them in pigs. This year, they began putting them in cows. So this has been caused by the consumer backlash of antibiotic use, subtherapeutic antibiotic use. So the industry says, okay, we'll eliminate antibiotics. We're not antibiotic-free, <laughs> but we're using vaccines over here. And remember, organic certification does not address vaccination. They never have. And so we're having mRNA jabs in, the, um, in, in organics. So... This is concerning people, and and you know, these these uh, you know Dell Bigtree with Highwire, uh, Joe Mercola, uh, these these multi multi million uh, uh, podcasters, uh, we're not the only ones aware of this. Okay, it's really coming on, um, and an inventory. You know, we want to maintain an inventory of food. Uh, you know, Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey talks about a six-month emergency fund. You're familiar with Dave Ramsey, the, you know, the, the financial guru? Um, yeah, what? 
Yeah, Dave Ramsey says all debt is bad, and I don't agree with everything that he says. But I do appreciate, I do appreciate the six-month emergency fund. I know the average, I mean, as a, as a direct marketer, it's really a problem when you're selling uh, quarters and sides of beef to realize that half of all Americans can't put their hands on $400. Think about that. Half of all Americans right now, if you said, I need $400, they can't put their hands on $400. That's what you call living pretty close to your chest. Okay? So, emergency fund's good. Well, how about emergency food? You know, imagine the stress level the average person, imagine the stress level that would have changed in the average person and realized stress is the number one immunodepressant. The number one way to reduce your immune system is stress. Okay, that's number one. Well, think of what it would have done to the stress of the average person if, if in the spring of 2020, when everything shut down, if everybody had six months worth of food in their house. That's the way we were. When Teresa sends me shopping, she says, go get me a can of tomato juice, green beans, and applesauce. I go to the basement. There's, you know, hundreds of quarts of home canned stuff down there, and I go shopping, bring it up. And that, I mean, we don't do that because we're afraid. We do that because we're ants. <laughs> we do that because we're bees and, 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 and we're, 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 we're just putting by, putting by for tomorrow's time. But the emotional cost of tight dependency is, is pretty high, the emotional stress factor. So food security is a, big, is a big one, is a big why. Number two, family stability. Family stability. Work is a good thing. And working together as a family on a homestead is a good thing. Why? Because you only create intimate relationships in hardship. If you want to make close friends, don't go to the bar. If you want to make close friends, sweat together. Work together. Round up cows together. Chop thistles together. That's why soldiers, that's why military people come back with such lifelong, enduring friendships. Because when you're dodging a howitzer together, that's hardship. And you're depending on each other. And I'm very concerned that today's modern family, there is no hardship. Everybody's, everything's provided. And children grow up without hardship. And the only thing they do with their parents is go on a Caribbean cruise or a ski trip to Aspen. And they haven't been down in the trenches together, weeding green beans, cutting off corn so it can be frozen for winter's meal, and developing the intimate understanding of what true working together does learning conflict resolution boy we've got a we've got a a a bankruptcy in conflict resolution in our country today what a better place to learn conflict revolution revolution conflict revolution conflict resolution than in a family on a homestead 
You can't run away. Well, I guess you can, but generally it, running away isn't a good option. And so you work through it. You got your bed, you got your room upstairs, you know, you got it, and, 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 and you, you got to get along. You can't just, I'm taking my marbles and going home. And this is important for learning what to fight for and what to give up. Which, ba which battles are worth fighting and which ones aren't. And we desperately need this kind of harmonious work habitat to be able to work out conflict resolution. Meaningful accomplishments together. Meaningful accomplishments together are what drive stable family relationships. I would suggest even that self-worth is a very important aspect of this family stability. Accomplishment drives worthiness. One of our problems today that our young people don't feel worthy. You know, if you look at any of these school shootings, and I don't want to get political here, but I don't mind being cultural. If you look at any of these school shootings, read the diaries, read the social postings of every one of these young people. They don't feel worthy. Somehow, they don't feel accepted. They don't feel affirmed. They might be extra smart. They might be extra dumb. They might be extra rebellious. They might be, who knows? But they're somehow... They're not being affirmed. And when, and you don't get infirmed, you don't get affirmed just by going up and saying, you're a good boy. <laughs> you're a good girl. Affirmation and worthiness follow accomplishment. Now, I'm not saying that there are some people that are worthless, okay? But I am saying that our, 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 our perception of self-worth is directly related to accomplishment. And it's got to be meaningful accomplishment. The level of self-worth that happens when, I've, when, when I can take friends out and show them my six tomato plants in the garden. I planted these. I weeded them. I trellised them. Look at the, here, you want one of these tomatoes? Wow, that's cool. Man, that is so juicy. It is so better. That's cool. Compare that to, wow, you're the top points getter on Angry Birds. <laughs> Self-worth comes from meaningful accomplishment. What we have today is a lot of shallow, shallow accomplishment objectives for our youth and they're not pushing, they're not, they're not striving, they're not learning how to gut a chicken, plant a green bean, can corn, grind applesauce in the, in the food, food mill, gather eggs, tote firewood, sharpen an axe. All of these heritage skills that brought affirmation and worth to young people. I think it's wonderful. Discovering who you are requires experimenting with who you might be. And if all you do is sit in the basement playing video games, you won't discover who you are. And you won't discover who you might be. And you won't discover your identity. Affirmation must be deserved to be valued. 
It must be deserved to be valued. I remember our, our daughter, Rachel, she was about seven or eight, and she started a, a baking business, uh, making uh, pound cakes and, and zucchini bread. And uh, we take them down to farmer's market, and these, these uh, well-coiffed, blue hair, garden club women <laughs> who were chalking up little brownie points for participating in the local food. I bought from the local food system. I am something, you know. And they've got their little, you know, poodle on the end of the leash. And they'd buy zucchini bread and pound cake, and they'd come up to Rachel, you know, she's about eight, pinch her on the cheek, you know how matrons do. Oh, are you the little girl that I bought that zucchini bread? I served it at my garden club last week, and the ladies just went crazy over it. Oh, it was the best zucchini bread we ever had. Oh, blah, 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 blah. You know what that does to a child? It makes them feel affirmed and worthwhile. We're big believers in child entrepreneurism. Number three, number three, why would we homestead? Why would we uh, 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 make this leap? I'd suggest child development is another one. Child development is another one. I'm, 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 I'm just moving forward with the previous thing. Chores. Think about chores. The average urbanite, what are their chores? Make your bed. Put away your clothes. Now, there's not a whole lot to do. I love chores. I really love, I, I call chores my bookends of the day. Chores are what you, you know, what you have to do every morning, first thing you get up, and last thing before you come in, say, for supper. And um, I've always gotten up early and gone out and done chores, and then I come in for breakfast. And that lets Teresa sleep another hour. She says, you know, you don't, the, the, the farmer's wife doesn't have to get up, you know, as early as everybody else. And uh, so she can sleep an extra hour and then she can have breakfast when I come in. We've always done that. And, and to me, chores create almost a liturgy to the day, a, a harmonious um, rhythm and liturgy to the day. It's like, you know, I, I, can't, I can't get started on projects until this, this, and this, until the, the eggmobiles are moved and the chickens are moved and the... Um, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so it, it, it's the rhythms. And what it does is it, it teaches pr appreciation for what we have. What we have doesn't just suddenly arrive on the table. And I, I, I'm convinced that too many young people are growing up thinking that what they have, just it just shows up. The food shows up in the refrigerator. The, the clothes show up in the hamper, the uh, vacation shows up, whatever. And, and chores teach us appreciate and realize that there's, there's, there's stuff behind the curtain here. There's stuff happening here that's required behind the curtain to get you to what you have. Responsibility follows ownership. If we want to create a responsible culture, Responsible adults, responsible children. What they need to have is ownership of something. In charge of gathering the eggs. In charge of weeding the green beans. 
that personal ownership of either a project or a thing creates responsibility. There's nothing like being in charge that makes you appreciate the gravity of the situation. So a word to you parents that are moving out to homesteads with your kids. Let them have responsibility and then walk away. Let them be. Because when we hover over them, helicopter parents make boomerang kids that won't leave. If you want kids that are self-starters, what we call bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, savvy self-starters, what we do is give them responsibilities and then let them be and let them figure it out. Let them deal with it. And I'm a big believer in child entrepreneurism. I think, I think one of the best uh, places for child entrepreneurism is somewhere between eight and, uh, eight and 10 or 11 years old. Why? Until eight, Kids don't really value money yet. You know, they, if you offer them two quarters or a dollar, they'll take the two quarters. I mean, they feel like more and they're shiny and they're heavy, right? But about eight, they start realizing, I think I'd rather have the dollar than the two quarters, okay? But the problem is, around 11, they, they start losing that childhood freedom, that, that happy-go-lucky, they start being concerned about what other people think. And it's not cool anymore. And if you wait till 13, you lost them. So I think there's this magic time between 8 and 11 where they're old enough to actually understand profit and loss and keep some records and, you know, do some things like that, uh, keep some, you know, margins and, and, and figure out and, and do some marketing and those kind of things. And... And, and at the other end, and, and yet not be self-conscious. Tell you about my little, my little granddaughter, Lauren. She was about, no, she's 15 now, but when she was about five, she had these two older brothers. One of them had lambs and one of them had ducks for their businesses. And so she's five. So, you know, girls are always ahead of boys. So she's looking, you know, she said, ah, I got I to start something. So unbeknownst to us, completely unbeknownst to us, on one of our chicken pickup days, she knew we were going to have all these customers there at the farm. So she goes out in the field and she picks a, nice big bouquet of wildflowers out in the field. <clears throat> she comes in. So she waits till this, you know, man walks in. She walks right up to him and she says, um, I picked these flowers and um, I'm sure your wife would really like some flowers. I'm selling them for a dollar. We didn't know any of this. She, 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 she conceived, contrived and did the whole, it was a conspiracy, you know, she did the whole thing. But, but, you know, all we saw, she walked in the door, walked up to this guy, and suddenly, you know, we, we, we've, got this, we've got this story unfolding us, you know, so we're all watching this happen. And what was really hilarious was <clears throat> she was already prepared for plan B. So she says, you know, if your wife would, would I'm sure she'd like these. I'm, I'm selling them for a dollar. And she didn't even let the guy say yes or no. She went right on to plan B. She said, now, but if you don't have a wife, I'm sure you know a lady somewhere who would love to have you know, flowers. I mean, you know, what do you say? Yes, ma'am. You know, hand over the dollar and you're done. But that kind of free spirit is gone at 11. Are you with me? Or at 12. Now suddenly you're more self-conscious. So I think there's this magic age for children to have their entrepreneurial projects 
somewhere between about 8 and 11. Um, if, if we want them to be responsible, responsibility, responsibility is like immunity. It's like a muscle. Responsibility is like a muscle. And in order to, to, to be strong, to have strong responsibility, you need exercise. How do you exercise responsibility? You get put in charge of things. Feed the chickens. Hey, you got problems with kids wanting to do chores? Turn it into a business. Tell you what, you take over the chickens, I'll pay you six bucks a dozen for every dozen eggs you get. Suddenly, they don't want to break them. And they're eager to go out, oh, I only got 11 today instead of 12, you know. Um, and, and they're out talking to the chickens, playing guitar to them, singing folk songs or whatever, you know. Can you lay some more, ladies, you know? I mean, all sorts of cool stuff happens when you put them in charge, okay? Suction off a little 10, 10 foot by 10 foot spot. That's your garden. Sure, you want them to work with you, yes. But also, give them a little square that's their own. That they can take visitors out. Here's my garden. And they can beam and talk about their garden looks better than mom and dad's. That's cool. Okay. And pay them for the peppers. Pay them for the tomatoes. Weigh them out. Make it into a business. Kids love that. Another child development aspect I think that, that our homesteads offer is, is, is just muscles. Physique. A farm physique. I mean, one of the coolest things that, what, that happens when our, with our uh, stewardship and apprentice program is, um, is the way these young people come at the end of the season. I mean, you know, a lot of these guys come, they've been on a computer, you know, whatever, and they, they look like Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, with little itty-bitty arms, you know, like, like E.T., you know, because they've been sitting in front of a computer. They get out there, you know, one of our best was a guy, um, he was with us at, during the summer. In three months, he gained 30 pounds and did not change waist size. Looked like a bull. Okay? Looked like a man. The ladies get tawny, tanned, beautiful. That sun, their countenance. I'm not trying to be sexist here at all. I'm just saying there's something about doing physical, meaningful, hard work outdoors that makes us bloom. We're, we're made for that. Our, our bodies, the, the physical aspect of our, of our, I mean, Michelle Obama was right. Let's move. But the average kid today, they don't move anywhere. They don't have anything to move to. They don't have any reason to move except their two thumbs on a little game board. So they got thumbs about the size of your feet. You know, there's a new malady now. There's, there's a neck malady. Have you heard of this? Where It's, it's actually a, a bone spur that's growing in the neck from being looking at screen all the time. Yeah, this, this is serious stuff. I mean, we're, we're, we're reorganizing ourselves to be like screen dependent. Um, you know, immune systems work. Immune system exercise. You know, when you're out and your, your hands are in the soil, the immune system is a muscle too. This is the, uh, the hygiene hypothesis, in case you've not heard of it. The hygiene hypothesis uh, says that our immune system is like a muscle and it needs routine assaults in order to develop strength. 
Finland, Finland leads the world right now in the research on this direct connection between working in the soil, and especially infant and child immune development, being exposed to the soil, to manure, to urine, to the filth, okay? And they're finding a huge difference in health between these rural kids that grow up in a, in a stable and the city kids. So much so that they're actually trying to figure out a way to transfer farm soils to urban settings. I believe, based on their, if there's any entrepreneurs in the audience, I think the next millionaire entrepreneur, I, I, this is funny, but I'm dead serious, okay? <clears throat> you start a subscription service for urbanites to make a, make a welcome pad a permeable welcome pad that you fill with compost and soil and they can subscribe for, you know, 50 bucks a year and every quarter you go and switch it out so they can stomp on it, their kids can get on it, the pets can, you know, walk their feet on it and then come up and jump on your sofa and you can immerse your family in farm, soil, compost, microbial activity and give your immune system. I mean, it's a whole lot cheaper than drugs and it'll probably give you a lot more immune system. Those of you who know me know whenever I can, I drink out of the cow tank. Cows are drinking out of that side. I just go down and drink out of the cow tank. I do that on purpose to feed my microbiome. And I'm not saying I never get sick, but I'll put my days of sickness up against anybody. I mean, I, I just, I don't get sick. I'm not saying that cavalierly. I'm, I, I'm, I'm putting my faith in something, in something different. Hygiene hypothesis works. All right. Um, reality. I'm still on this, this child development thing. I think child ch children today um, need a healthy dose of reality. Life isn't a game. Now, I'm not saying we don't want to have fun with it. But life isn't a game. I mean, think about it. You know, you're playing this video game. You're driving this car, you know, and you go around a corner too fast or whatever. You know, the, the car flips over and, you know, all the little sparks and shocks and stars come off the wreck, you know, and you sit there, oh, shoot, you know, and you wait there about two minutes and you got a new car. Well, when you're 16 and you go around a corner too fast, take out a utility pole, flip the car, you don't just, Step out, wait two seconds, and life gives you a new car. And this whole fantasy world is creating a complete non-reality persona within the heads of our, of our society to where nobody's got their head in reality anymore. They're all in some sort of fantasy la-la land. And a homestead, understanding, you know, the chicken died. There's not, it's not going to resurrect tomorrow. You know, encountering real life and real death. You didn't water the tomato plant. Look, it's wilted. Tomorrow it dies. Oh, where's another tomato plant? Sorry. Got to wait till next year. I think it's critical. I, I think we abuse our, our children today by not having them encounter the realities of life and death and the responsibility of what it takes to produce, to put something on the table. In fact, I would suggest that this is critical 
for developing a sense of humility that there's something else out there bigger than me. Problem with video games is I control everything. I can turn it on and off. I can decide what level to play. I've never played a video game, so I don't know who I'm talking about, but I'm just telling you what I've been told. I never even played Pac-Man, okay? I, I am a true Neanderthal Luddite, okay? I don't have a smartphone. I'm not smart enough for a smartphone. I don't text. I don't take any messages. I haven't been able to figure out how to take the messages off my smartphone, off my flip phone. So if you call my flip phone, uh, it'll just say the message board's full. You can't leave a message anyway. No sense in taking them off. I don't know how to take them off anyway. But here's the thing. Think about how much of life is at the fingertips of our young people. And when you get out here on the farm and the homestead and you're faced off with this cow and you want her to go that way and she takes her head and she shakes it at you, you realize there's something bigger than me here. I don't mean just physically, I mean cosmically. And you get into the drought and it doesn't rain, there's something bigger than me. You hatch some little chicks, and sure enough, on that day, you see that little pet coming through that shell. Something bigger than me. Okay? And I think, I think we are developing a generation of hubris, a cult of hubris, as our young people are abused so much that they don't interact with life and death in reality. And they come into adulthood with a jaundiced view of how easy it is and how everything's at my fingertips and I can just, I can just fix all this. No, it's, it's a lot bigger than that. Come to it humbly, not with hubris. Number four, number four, the homestead movement, I think the why one of them is moving toward what I call rural wealth. We... The, the, the downfall of civilizations, you can know, we've had, what, 25 empires since, you know, since we've recorded history. And every one of them, one of the things that preceded the, the empire, the, the downfall of the empire, is an economic transfer of wealth from rural to city. Every one of them. You have the impoverishment of the agriculture land, economically, and the the, the development, the centralization of the economy in the, bank, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the city. There's a growing understanding that we need to decentralize the economy. Who trusts the bankers anymore? You know, what we need to do, as I said, is cash in your 401k for relationships with proximate people who know how to grow things, build things, and repair things. That's where true rural wealth comes. We need to be moving our wealth. And, and this is a conundrum. I, I get it. It's a conundrum for me. You know, what do you do with your money? Well, you, you, you learn a skill. You, you invest in a relationship. You, get, you, you buy information. Um, you buy books. That's easy for an author to say. Um, but but you, you, know, you, you go to a conference like this. I mean, the fact that you invested in this conference 
I guarantee you the dividends you're getting from this two-day investment here spin circles around that money put in Wall Street. Okay? So, as they say in Australia, good on you. Okay? Good on you. I'm serious. I'm serious. And we start thinking about, about the things that people spend money on. You know, I get the Wall Street Journal, and every Friday they got the mansion section. You know what I'm talking about? The, you know, they got that special section about all the, the property mansions. And, I mean, I look at that every week, and it's just, I laugh. I mean, it's unbelievable the millions and billions and billions of dollars of yachts and mansions and beachfront. And, you know, so you, you come to this and you get these poor church mice that are just desperate for, you know, for $50,000 to be able to, you know, fence a back pasture or build a pond, put, some, put in a mile of water line so they can control graze. And, and you know, when I look at the, when I look at the opportunities and, and the needs out here for landscape healing and change and then see the kind of, anyway, no, this is just crazy. But rural wealth, we, we represent, we represent, I think, a transfer. And I think it's wonderful to see that transfer of city wealth to the country, we 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 say that on our farm we're a we're a reverse um, a, a, a reverse um, you know traffic pattern uh, for morning and evening. You know, um, our people are coming out to work at the farm uh, instead of going into town. Number five, resilient land management. Why are people coming to homesteading for resilient land management? You know, small is beautiful. Wes Jackson, when he in, in the Altars of Unhewn Stone, he talks about the eyes to acre ratio, the eyes to acre ratio. And you know, I remember in the in the 1980s very well. All the ag literature was talking about that by the turn of the century, you know, by 2000, farmers were just going to sit at consoles, and their farms would be under under an astrodome with uh, robots. And farmers would just be, um, it, it called it push-button push farming. Farmers would just push, that's all we do. I remember well, you know, Dad passed away in 1988. And I remember uh, we, were, we were down there together in, I don't know, 84, 83, something like that. And we were, we were working on, a, on a, uh, putting in a, a, a fence line, digging post holes along a creek that had a bunch of river jack in it. River jack is, is the, you know, is, is kind of pretty good-sized rock that's down in the bottom of, of creeks where we are. We were down there along the creek, and you go down about a foot, and you're into this river jack, so you got to be, you know, pulling out these softball and, and bigger-sized rocks. So we're down there. It's a hot July day. You know, we're sweating down to our crotch. You know, can't see because all the sweat's in our eyes, and we're trying to get these rocks out. And he looks at me with this mischievous grin and says, this is some of that push-button farming, you know. Um, in fact, um, uh, I was scheduled in uh, 2020, fall 2020, to go to Great Britain and, um, and debate an Oxford, Oxford University guy in a debate, the topic was the farmer of the future will not have a farmer. Obviously, I was going to be negative. The other guy was going to be affirmative. But this notion that, that, um, that we, can, we can eliminate our eyes to acre, the beauty of a small acreage is that you do have a lot of eyes to acre and you can see things, you can do things. You can, you can think about stacking and multi-speciation better. Because why? Because you're producing groceries, not just commodities. 
You know, most farms in America, you know, they're, they're in a commodity business. We've got, we're going to, you know, produce this commodity. So it's one thing. But if you're on a homestead and the first thing you're trying to do is replace your grocery bill, you don't want to produce a commodity. You want to replace your grocery bill. So what do we got? We got some tomatoes, corn, green beans. You know, we got all the produce. And then maybe have a milk cow and or a milk goat. I like the cow better. Um, people say, why don't you have a goat? I says, because we had a goat. It's past tense, present tense. Um, <clears throat> you know, you might have some sheep, uh, chickens, uh, grapevines, a few apple trees, some plums, some pears. All right. It's this, it's this. And, and, and so, so the homestead, because it's growing groceries instead of single commodities, inherently incentivizes diversity. And that's better, that's better for the soil. It's better for the diversity. You know, the self-reliance inherently incentivizes variety, all the stacking, the multispeciation, all that sort of thing. In fact, I would suggest that even innovation, innovation tends to happen when you're piddling around. People say, oh, these homesteaders, you know, they're not, they're, they're not, they're not, really, not really adding up anything. Folks, right now, America has 35 million acres of lawn. 35 million acres of lawn and 36 million acres growing and housing recreational horses. Now, I don't think horses are sinful, okay, just for the record, but that's 35 and 36 is 71 million acres of some of our best land that's not producing anything edible unless you're eating horse. Most people aren't eating horse. Not here anyway. In fact, that's enough, according to John Jevons, the biointensive guru, that's enough to feed the entire country without a single farm. Folks, we don't have a population problem. We have a caretaker's problem. We have a stewardship problem. In fact, as my son Daniel says, he says our weak link it's not that we don't know enough or even have enough money. Our weak link is constipation of imagination. Our weak link is between our ears. So, so small, small holdings can be extremely productive, extremely productive. In fact, um, Cornell in New York, Cornell did a study and they found that every single metropolitan area of the U.S. could feed itself with a, with a radius out of about 30 miles. Every single one could feed itself. The problem is we're depleting the Ogallala Aquifer at two feet a year in order to grow alfalfa to ship to Saudi Arabia to feed horses because they don't want to lose all their water. Folks, this is nuts. Utah, same issue. I mean, the reason China bought Smithfield, hog producers, the biggest U.S. acquisition of any foreign interest, was not to get pork. It was the cheapest way to get water. So they could get U.S. pork and not have to grow it themselves and with their own water, which is all polluted. Number six, why are we going homesteading? Practical skills. You know, Mike Rowe has really publicized the dirty jobs idea. 
This is real life value. You know, when you know how to do something, that's real life value. That's barterable. That's tradable. You know, back in the old days, we used to trade around in the countryside. You know, we'd, we, we'd have uh, threshing rings and then we'd have haymaking and then we'd all butcher together. And, and uh, you know, and, and I'm old enough to remember when I was a kid going to these neighborhood hog killings and things like that. And we'd, we'd field dress beef and we'd do this kind of stuff as a community. And there was always somebody that was really good with a knife and, and you know, good with a gun. And, you know, and, and we do this kind of thing as a community. Today, you know, you take it to the slaughterhouse. You don't know your neighbor. Nobody knows what anybody can do. Everybody got their own tractor. Everybody got their own truck. They all got, and, 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 and there's no sharing along, you know, um, and we don't, we don't do this kind of thing. You know, 40% of Americans want to work with their hands. I know that's a shocker to some people. Um, I didn't know anybody wanted to work with their hands anymore. We've got a real problem in our country when we can't figure out how to honor and respect the 40% of Americans who want to get splinters and calluses in their hands. And so homesteads give people that opportunity to have skills, outside skills, to get splinters and calluses in their hands and affirm. It's one of the greatest joys we have with our, um, with our composting program. You know, um, if, we, if we took all the money we spent on chemical fertilizer in this country and plugged it into carbon, chipping the dead trees, go to Colorado, the square miles of trees that are going to burn, California, and start doing some strategic biomass uh, uh, carbon e economic work, not only could we eliminate the $5 billion we're spending fighting fires, but we would put all that carbon in the soil and grow worms, reduce flooding, increase organic matter, and give thousands and thousands of Americans who want to work outside with their hands and viscerally participate in nature a chance to do so. So when they come home and their kids say, Mommy, Daddy, what'd you do today? They get to answer their kids, we chipped carbon to compost to feed earthworms to build soil so that you'll have a better nest to inherit than we did. Now, if that's not honoring and sacred, I don't know what is. And we desperately need that kind of honoring sacred work to affirm the 40% of Americans who actually don't simply aspire to spend their lives in a Dilbert cubicle at the end of an expressway, punching numbers into cyberspace for the man. Number seven, why are we homesteading? Home entertainment. You know how much money people spend to catch a little bit of natural beauty? But on a farmstead, a homestead, we can walk out the back door, watch the sunset, watch the sunrise. On our small farms, we do art and craft on the landscape, not just production. There are numerous elements of this beauty. You know, I've always said that a, a good farm should be aesthetically and aromatically, sensually romantic. How do we do that? What are the elements? Well, hydration, ponds. Oh, you know what? You know what? What a wonderful thing it is for to, to take a, a family walk and you're and, and you come around the edge of a, of a pond and there's a there's a, a, a wood duck or a wild goose or something there, you know, and, and you've got little hatchlings, or you walk up upon a, a, 
a, a wild turkey uh, that's just hatched little babies, you know, and you go up and you grab one of those and the old mama, she stands over here and she's, rah, 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 she's carrying on. You, you know, you just, you just, it's just a thing to do, you know, and, and there's magic in that for kids. There's entertainment beauty. You know how much money somebody would spend for that experience? And we get to do it just by being there. That's a tremendous value. Biomass regenerations. You know, how do you know, how do you know somebody that's moved into the, into the community and bought one of these, uh, what we call residential estates? Um, how do you know they're a homesteader or just a city, a city transplant? The day they buy the riding lawnmower. If you bought a riding lawnmower, you're not a homesteader. Why? Because you're ripping up your yard and turning it into garden beds. Planting fruit trees. Okay? Um, you know, that, that, that shows that you get it. It's kind of like, like my benchmark of how do you know somebody gets the food system? How do you know somebody really understands the food system? <clears throat> leftovers. If you're eating leftovers, you probably ate as a family, cooked as a family, cooked from scratch, and had Tupperware and put it in at the end of the meal, right? I mean, think about the single-service packaging, the single-service labor, the convenience cost of single-service everything, Lunchables, Hot Pockets, squeezable Velveeta cheese, all that junk. It's all about single-service. No, what we want is leftovers. I got off the topic here. Grasslands. You know, listen, predators, perennials, and pruning. Do you know how beautiful it is <laughs> to see a raccoon in your trap that's been picking your pocket from the chicken house and to see him there, that's a beautiful thing, you old raccoon, you. That's a fun thing, all right? We have perpetual jihad on groundhogs, you know. Um, I mean, you can't get that kind of joy. It's a beautiful thing to encounter um, uh, something that's, been picking your pocket for a while and, and put them in their place. That's a, that's a good thing. And it doesn't all have to be legal, but you probably shouldn't say anything. We practice the three S's. The three S's are shoot, shovel, and shut up. Okay. Grasslands. I mean, think about the beauty of grasslands. My, one of my most favorite things I do is, um, and, and I do it several times in a season because it just never gets old. You got a herd of I don't know if you do this with, with bison or not, Taylor. I, you don't know that. I wouldn't. But with cows, especially our cows, because they get moved every day, so they're real gentle and content. I love to go out after supper. It's quiet. Sun, sun setting. It's getting cooler. Just go out in the pasture. You know, we moved the cows around 4 o'clock, so they're now they've been grazing for three or four hours. They're really, you know, or we, we, as we say, we say tight as a tick. You know, they're just full and... I mean, they just look like they're so fat they can hardly move and they're real content. You just go out there. I just lie down, lie down in the grass, lie down in the pasture, just lie there. And those cows, they'll come up and they'll, you know, they'll come up and they'll, they'll get their old wet muzzle and pretty soon you, you can hear them. You know, you can hear them coming before they come. You know, you hear that. You know, they're kind of, kind of blowing. And, uh, Next thing you know, they're, they're, they're licking your face because you probably got some sweat on or licking your pants because you got some salty sweat or something. And just to have those, those beautiful, majestic beasts, that, that gentle. 
I've never had, I mean, I've been in these herds of 400, 500. I've never had one step on me. Ever. They, you know, and then they lick a little bit. They might, they might lick your hat off. That's okay. That's okay. But that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, there's, there's nothing like it. You know what somebody would pay for that experience? It's beautiful. Enjoyment, just home entertainment, enjoyment. I mean, the response of moved animals. People say, why are you happy all the time? Man, every time I get up in the morning, I, you know, I think I'm going to move these cows, move these pigs, move these chickens, these turkeys. And you know how animals respond when you move them? I mean, they go in, they, you know, cows are dancing, throwing their, you know, the calves are jumping around, lambs are, you know, butting heads. And, and who, gets to, who gets to bring that much joy to that many beings every day? I mean, that is entertainment. I mean, it beats Abbott and Costello to pieces. The response of, of a pruned grapevine. You, know, you, you, make, you take this grapevine that's all a bunch of mess, you prune it back, turn it into a skeleton. And what does it do in a month when, the, when it starts to warm up and the frost is over? Just this beautiful little blossoms and explosions. The apple tree, you know, you'd prune that down to a skeleton. You say, how could that thing even live? And next thing you know, in two months, it's just a beautiful white profusion. Folks, you can't, you can't put a dollar value on that. And we get to just do that for nothing. You know, just for fun. Picnic sites for relaxation. You know, mission is foundational to happiness and satisfaction. Homestead offers that kind of mission. You know, the thrill of the thrill of felling trees. Oh, yeah, man, the thrill of felling. I mean, talk about home entertainment and enjoyment. You know, you drop a tree and it hits one and won't fall. You go to that one and you chop that one, it goes into the third one. By the time you get into the third one, you're cutting that one, you're watching two up. I mean, that's all the thrill. I don't need, I don't need roller coasters. I don't need to care. I get all the adrenaline rush I need getting under three trees and cutting out the two that fell in the other one or, or pulling, pulling a calf and the enjoyment of pulling that calf, seeing it come out alive or dealing with the one that didn't come out alive with your child and talking about doesn't always come out right. You need to learn that too. Number eight, economic investment. <clears throat> The beauty of a homestead is it's intrinsic wealth. It's not funny money. It's not central digital banking. It's not FTX. It's not crypto. Investing in the farm is a big deal. Number nine, so, and I'm hurrying here because I'm about done. Nine, social structure. Okay, homesteaders are good for social structure. We have over-individualized our culture, and it's time to recreate a community legacy. I ran into a guy um, one time, uh, recently, and he has started a mutual assistance group. That's MAG, not MAGA. MAG, mutual assistance group in his community. <laughs> and and what this is non-sectarian, non-partisan, non-political, non-religious. What they do is they just meet every quarter, potluck, and talk about how can we help each other. What do you need that I can help with? So they build buildings together. I mean, it's like, it's like being Amish without the uniform. And I love that. I mean, they had one guy that lost his job because he wouldn't get the jab. So what are your expenses? He gave him his monthly expenses. They passed a hat. Said, here, here's three months. Three months to let you find a new job. 
What's that worth? What's that really worth? Would you like to live in a place like that? I would. Are we willing to participate and invest in a place like that? Invest in that social structure, sharing expertise and infrastructure, developing mutual interdependence, knowing our neighbors. After I heard him speak, we were speaking at a conference. I was so convicted and challenged by his talk that I've committed, and I'm trying to share it so it'll keep me honest, is this summer, uh, during the summer, every Monday night, we're going to invite one of our neighbors down for dinner for the whole crew. We have an on-farm chef. All of us eat together. There's about 25 of us that eat together every, every uh, weekday night and invite them down. No agenda, just, you know, when you're trying to build a relationship, who, who reaches out first? You know, we're all sitting there, well, if, if they would just, you know, if those people would just do the thing. I mean, we, we, we've become this, this blame culture, you know. Uh, you know, if those people would just do the right thing, the country would be better. If those people would just vote the right way, this country would be better. And what we need to do is look in the mirror and realize there's no them, it's just us. Finally, number 10, homesteading, I think, is really powerful for the faith perspective. Homesteads are living things. They're like a marriage. You know, you have that honeymoon period. You get you know, all the excitement of getting this place and getting on this place and setting up housekeeping and dreaming and all that stuff. And then cows are out. One piece of advice here, folks. Don't get a cow till you have fences. You know how many homesteaders, because I, I do now a lot with homesteaders. Now I'm, I'm doing almost more with homesteaders than farmers all of a sudden. It's just, it's just, it, it's crazy. And I can't tell you how many times somebody tells me, yeah, <clears throat> these Scottish Highlanders, they're so cute. And we went out to this guy and we wanted a heritage breed. So we got these Scottish Highlanders. And I mean, we could walk up to the field and I mean, just, just pet them. You know, and they got that hair down. I don't know if they saw us or not, but they let us pet them, you know, hair down their eyes. So gentle. And so we bought three of them. And the guy loaded them on a trailer. They came home. And you know, they came off that trailer like a shotgun. Headed through the back pasture, across the interstate. We had three deputies, four squad cars, and a SWAT team out there until we actually got those things corralled at a neighbor eight miles away. Build a fence before you get cows. All right. But faith, faith. Who gets married? Who gets married and expects it to fall apart? Nobody. That is a, a beautiful act of faith. And our homesteads are the same way. We come to our homestead for all these wonderful reasons of why. And we have to have that faith that it'll work out when things aren't going well. I think one of the most beautiful things about homesteading and farmsteading and, and being in rural is in the city, we're completely surrounded by things humans did. Buildings, streets, stoplights, automobiles. Our whole life is consumed by what humans did. Out here, we're consumed and immersed in what God did. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. To be reminded 
I'm not in charge ultimately. I'm not in charge. I'm part of a beautiful tapestry that's being woven. Part of a beautiful choreography. You can use whatever metaphor you want. But I'm a part of something much bigger than myself. And my faith in God's design, in the immune function of my animals, and the, 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 the faith that the seeds that need to sprout will sprout there. I mean, think about this. A red clover, a red clover seed will stay viable for a thousand years. So remember I was talking to you about that clover that came up through our broom sedge there? Think about that. I don't know when that seed hit the ground. Let's say it hit the ground 400 years ago. 400 years ago. <clears throat> so the first year, spring, ah, no, I don't think this is the time to sprout. Year two, ah, no, I don't think this is the time to sprout. Year three, don't worry, I'm not going to go 400, okay? Year 400, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. There's some biological activity. There's a rhizosphere working in my favor. Thank you, Ann. It's time to sprout. And I got to walk through the field and watch that 400-year-old seed, the year that it decided to sprout. That's faith. That's faith in a pattern, in a template, in a, in a, in a provision from a benevolent creator that has a design that it's my responsibility to honor, respect, leverage, and caress on a daily basis. That is a privilege. It is an honor. And we can all share that privilege. I don't know, I don't know how you feel about your mission, about your place, wherever it is, whether you're a farmer, not a farmer, whatever it is, you are. But I want to tell you, the future, whatever we have today, wherever we are today, whatever you're frustrated about today, whatever we, whatever we see today is a manifestation, just like that clover plant. It's a manifestation of the caretaking that has gone on before. And in a hundred years... The, uh, the ecology that we see, the environment that we see, the water we see, the rivers we see, the earthworms we see, in a hundred years, those will be a physical manifestation of our stewardship between now and then. And every one of us has a place to play. Don't underestimate what the cumulative effect of millions and billions of decisions, individual decisions that you and I make on a daily basis what they accumulate to 100 years down the road. God bless you. Thank you for letting me visit with you. God bless you. And that, my friend, is where hope grows. Hope you're feeling motivated. You probably already listed your house on Zillow and you're searching land.com. And for that, I commend you. And if that's not in the cards today, then perhaps in the future you can manifest a trajectory in which this becomes your beautiful reality. So special thanks to Joel Salatin. That was a live recording that took place right here on the regenerating soils of Rome Ranch. We do it every single spring in conjunction with 
Force of Nature. So head over to forceofnature.com and check out this next year's upcoming What Good Shall I Do conference. You can take a look at the amazing speaker lineup, the incredible hands-on workshops that we have lined up this year. And we hope that you'll join us. We hope that you will no longer be just a consumer of information, but a creator that actively participates in the world in which you wish to see the world in which our children will inherit and their children will inherit and so forth and so on. So head over to forceofnature.com, load up your cart with some amazing regenerative meats and register for the conference. Why not? If you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed learning and listening to the self-proclaimed madman that is Joel Salatin, you can check him out at Polyface Farms, as well as read one of his many books that are just foundational resources to help you realize your dreams and begin that intimate relationship with co-creating on land as a farmer, as a rancher, as a gardener, as a land steward, whatever you want to define yourself as. Do not limit yourself, but define yourself. And we're going to close this episode with our what's becoming a new tradition, which is uh, reciting some kind of prayer or um, offering of gratitude to a higher being, a way to reflect and connect with Mother Nature or the divine. And the first time I ever heard Joel Salatin present was actually in London, England at a Savory Institute conference. And one of the things that moved me the most was the fact that he ended all of his presentations with his family's prayer. And this is like the farmer prayer of Polyface. It's so good. I'm going to let Joel Salatin in this episode in only a way that he can with his blessing of the land, of our animals, and our communities that depend on both. May all of your carrots grow long and straight. May your radishes be large but not pithy. May tomato blossom end rot affect your Monsanto neighbor's tomatoes. May the coyotes be struck blind at your pastured chickens. May all of your culinary experiments be delectably palatable. May the wind be always at your back, the rain fall gently on your fields, and your children rise and call you blessed. And may we all make our nest a better place than we inherited. God bless you. Thank you for letting me visit with you.